Have you thought about long-term care or maybe it scares you or maybe you don't think it's doable for you? If that's the case, I encourage you to keep on listening to this episode. Yes, you are here. Bienvenida to the Her Dinero Matters podcast, a mixed language podcast hosted by me, Jen Hemphill, to help you become the reign of your money and love your dinero more. If you are needing some inspiration and encouragement at this very moment, you have come to the right place. Gracias por compartir este tiempo conmigo. Now let's jump in to today's Dose of Money Confidence. Hola, hola, ¿qué tal? This is Jen Hemphill, your host, and I'm hoping you are having a fantastic and cool summer. I'm not personally a fan of summer because it just gets too hot for me. If you recall, I'm from Colombia, from the mountains. I like 60 to 70 degree weather year round. That's my ideal weather. But anyways, that's not why you're here. <laughs> This month, We are focusing on thinking bigger. And I felt like long-term care or the topic of long-term care really fit perfectly because we either don't think about it, don't think it's possible, or are just plain overwhelmed how to even go about it, which is why I invited this special guest to join with us today, where we're going to discuss that and some other things, but I really want you to pay attention to that portion. So let me share with you a little bit about today's guest. The Millennial Money Woman is also known as Fiona. Her goal is to help millennials have what she didn't growing up a guiding hand to help make the right financial decisions today so that their tomorrow will be a seamless ride. She co-founded a local community nonprofit helping young professionals in personal finance matters, is a certified financial planner, which is the equivalent to a financial ninja, a chartered retirement planning counselor, and she earned her master's of science in personal financial planning. Because she gained knowledge and practiced healthy financial habits, she purchased her first house at 23, has no debt minus her mortgage, and she's on her way to millionaire status in just a few more years. In today's episode, you're going to hear how exactly her grandparents influenced her financial journey, as well as the lessons she learned teaching financial literacy to underprivileged girls and pay attention to the lessons there. And for the juicy topic of today, factors to consider in long-term care and why we should even pay attention. Lista, vamos a conocer this reina of her money. Bienvenida, Fiona. I'm so thrilled to have you here and for you to share with us a little bit about your expertise. So welcome. Gracias. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Jen. And thank you for speaking a little Spanish. I know before we started recording, you were sharing me some of your Spanish and you speak so well. Bien hecho. <laughs> Muchas gracias. Si tenía una amiga de Venezuela, me enseñó mucho. <laughs> well, she did good. Yeah, applause to her. <laughs> applause to her. Now, 
One of the reasons I wanted to have you on, well, one, you call yourself the millennial money woman. So obviously you have expertise in finance, you're a financial expert. But before we get into your expertise and some of the topics that I wanted to cover, let's go back in time to when maybe Fiona was a little girl and tell us a little bit about what that looked like, what you saw, what you experienced, witnessed, heard lessons that you learned, things that maybe your parents told you or a family member that really impacted you and how you are not necessarily managing money, but maybe that too, or how you feel about money, all of that. Yeah. So I'm going to go back in time to when I was roughly nine or 10 years old. And I was a young girl and heavily influenced by my grandparents. My family in general is just super tight-knit, very close. And my grandparents took care of me a lot. And they were two people, my grandmother, my grandfather, they worked all their lives and built this small business together. It's nothing big, but they did work on it every day and they made it grow. And I saw though, due to poor financial planning, they lost this business, their livelihood basically. And they lost more too. They lost their home. They lost so much and were basically out in the streets because of poor financial planning. They didn't really know how to manage their money. And this was at like age 70, 75. So obviously not a position you want to be in in that time of life. And it was really tough. I mean, granted, I was only 10, so I really didn't feel the impact at that time. It, It was obviously an occurrence. But I think as I grew older, I always referred back to that event. And that was really the seed that opened my eyes to the world. Like, it's not always rainbows and butterflies out there. There is a lot to do with life that has to do with money. And if you don't know how to manage money, chances are your life is probably not going to unfold the way you want it to. And that was really the seed that germinated in me, in my mind, and helped me kind of understand where I wanted to navigate my career as I became a teenager and then went into college and figured out what I wanted to study, which ended up being finance. Love it. Now, tell us, I'm just curious, because you mentioned your grandparents were about 70 to 75 years of age when they lost their home. And definitely, that's a tough age to be dealing with that. Can you tell us a little bit of how they overcame that? Absolutely, yes. Essentially, it was everything to do with family, right? I mean, our family is essentially everything, right? I mean, obviously, money is so much. It's also very important, but family is more important, in my opinion. So our family came together and helped out my grandparents, right? We offered them to stay. We helped them out and were also there emotionally. So not only financially, but also emotionally. And I think that helped them through that phase. They ended up getting an apartment, but very, very small. I mean, we're talking tiny and it didn't have an elevator. And at that age, typically it's easier to have an elevator, right? So they were all the way at the top of the building. They had to walk up the stairs. So life really wasn't that easy, but they made it through. They managed to make it through with the help and support of the family. And that just makes me realize, like, again, although we're obviously talking about money, the fact that you have family and the fact that you keep your quality friends close is so important, especially during times like that. Absolutely. And it goes to reminding ourselves that we can't do this alone. We don't have 
to do it alone. It's okay to lean on someone to get us through hard times, to help us maybe overcome some sort of challenge or ask some questions that maybe you, we think, oh my gosh, I should know this or I should be doing better. We need to be okay. And I think we need to remind ourselves more and more often, especially in the times that we're living in now with the pandemic, it's so important to be okay with leaning on someone and asking for help. That's a really good point, Jen. And I think you really hit it there because, you know, my grandparents, they're being business owners, right? They wanted to be able to take things in their own hands and they didn't really like relying on other people, which I understand. Sometimes relying on other people doesn't work out, but in some cases, like you said, it's important to ask for help. People are there to help you. And, you know, it's really up to you to take that and help you both grow further. Right, right. Now, I know you live in Miami. And one of the things that you enjoy doing is teaching personal finance. And one of the things that you have shared with me is that in one of the instances where you were called upon to teach some personal finance, you realized that the people that you were speaking to had already made the decision because of their social economical background, they didn't think that wealth was a possibility. So can you talk to us about what you saw in terms of the hesitations that they maybe verbalized or shared and how can we overcome it? Because I know with the Latinx community, we're so taught about taking care of our family and working hard, but the wealth component, because Latin American countries typically the United States of America is what, I mean, let's just face it, it's just everybody looks to what the United States is doing, and they want to do that. So when it comes to Latin America, and in the United States, we've got the 401ks and the ROTS and those type of things. Latin America wants to do or has been doing something different, may not work to the same degree. But what I was going there is that in Latin America and our cultures were not necessarily taught to build wealth, right? So what did you see? All of that to say, what did you hear? What were some of the hesitations? And were you able to change their minds and have them say, yes, we can do this? Absolutely. I love that you're digging into this story. It was such a heartfelt moment for me. So to bring you back in time, I was teaching at an underprivileged school where it was actually mainly girls. And they were also mainly from the Latinx community. And they were roughly between 10 and 15 years old. So I was asked to essentially mentor the class for an hour and teach these girls some of the basic financial principles. And just so everyone knows, full disclosure, they did not have any financial teaching before this point in time. So Basically, I was the first financial teacher that they met. When I went into the class, the first question I asked before even going into the material was to ask every single student in this class, about 20 students, to raise their hand if they believe they will be a millionaire by the time they retire. Not one single hand went up. Not one. And when I looked through the class, I repeated the question, I think several times, not one, not a single hand shot up. And so that's when I kind of asked, you know, started digging, why is it that you guys do not believe that you won't be millionaires by the time you retire, which is four or five, even six decades 
down the road. And the number one answer that I got from them was to be a millionaire is just simply out of their reach. That's just the way life is. So there wasn't really, you know, a substantiated answer behind my question. It was just simply, it's not going to happen for us, period. That's it. And I think that they just didn't have the chance, the opportunity to educate themselves a little bit further to understand what does it actually take, mathematically speaking, to become a millionaire by the time they're 65, for example. And that was the entire focus of my class. Because I think, okay, everyone knows how to make money, right? You go out, you get a job, or you become your own employer. And everyone knows how to spend money through credit cards or whatnot. But the thing that happens in between the earning and the spending money, the investing, for example, that's what not many people are familiar with. So that's what I focused this one-hour class on. So obviously, it was one hour, and it was a little bit shorter, right, for these 10 to 15-year-olds. But what I ended up teaching them was this concept called compounding interest, which... Mm -hmm. The magic. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) The magic. Like Albert Einstein said, the eighth wonder of the world. (laughs) And what that is essentially is if you invest your money, especially early on, that compounding interest, your money will basically earn money on itself. Your money will buy you more money. And what I showed them just blew their mind, which is if they start at 20 years old, okay, and they take $9.66 a day and they invest that for 40 years, 45 years, they will be a millionaire at the end when they retire. And I think the fact that we were able to break down the numbers instead of, you know, using the $1 million number, we were able to break down like, what does that mean? How much do you have to save per month, per day? It made it so much more achievable, right? Like $9.66 or $10 a day. Everyone or almost everyone can do that. You can give up a little bit, maybe take it on another job, spend a little bit less, but that's doable. $9.66 a day versus I want to be a millionaire, right? Right. Because those goals, I've grown and I've evolved and I've improved before I would make these huge goals, but I didn't have any quick wins. So what would happen? I would just give up on that goal and feel like a failure. But it's just so important when I coach clients and everything, I really talk to them about creating those shorter term goals so you can have that win and then building upon that. So I love that you took that aspect of Yes, you can be a millionaire, and this is what it's going to take, and broke it down in bite-sized pieces. I know their minds were blown, and I love that. Now, the other thing that I know, and maybe I'm sure it probably didn't come up in your conversation with them at their age, but I know with my experience is I don't know if I saw that type of wealth as unattainable, but being a Latino, it was more of build to something you're comfortable in and don't be greedy, right? And I'm not saying it's just a Latina thing, but this is my own experience of why do you need to be a millionaire? For what? If you have enough money (laughs) and that can sustain you, why do you need more, right? Did you hear any of that? I'm just curious because of that age group, maybe not. Maybe that just comes later in life when you become an adult. (laughs) But I'm just curious if you heard that. 
That's a great point, actually, Jen. With that age group, I didn't actually hear that specific question, but I think some students, the, the older ones specifically, I think their conversations were very similar to that. Like, why is that million dollar number like the magic number? And you're absolutely right, Jen. It's not the magic number. It's simply what a lot of media, movies, etc. they use that as like the ultimate threshold, which is not really true. Like you said, as long as you're able to build a life around the things that you want to accomplish, if it's having a house to traveling the world, whatever it is, you don't necessarily need a million dollars to be happy. What it is about, though, is in building the life that you want in order to feel free. So you can do the things you want within a sustainable financial measure. Right. But I also want to say that it's okay to reach for $1 million. And I was saying that because that was my own struggle of, no, we don't need to build for a million dollars or for retirement or four million or or two million. That's why do we need that? But at the same time, I want to make sure that you're listening. It's you want to attain million, two, three, four, five million. It's completely okay. I think what I was trying to say too is that I struggle a lot with guilt of because I do come from privilege in the sense of yes, I'm a Latina, but I'm a white passing Latina. And my dad's American, and I did not immigrate to the U.S. We moved to the U.S. I've had all these different privileges, right? But I know as women in general, and I'm just not talking Latinas, we struggle with a lot of guilt in terms of wanting more. We are great investors as women, but we struggle with, do we really need, or do we not necessarily need, but that million is maybe or the 2 million, or those bigger numbers are, yeah, maybe far-reaching for some, but for others, it's there's a lot of guilt. Does that make sense? So I wanted to make sure that that was clear. For me, I'm great with building million, 2 million, and beyond in terms of net worth and wealth. I just want to make sure those listening that you need to define what your own definition of wealth as well is. Before we continue, I have a brief message to share. Her Dinero Matters is supported by First Republic Bank. Now more than ever, First Republic's priority is serving their clients and communities. Their personalized banking solutions go deeper than a transaction. For over 30 years, First Republic has striven to leave a positive impact on the communities they serve. From presenting grants to nonprofits in need to going the extra mile to connect individuals experiencing hardship with fair loans, the bank is focused on doing the right thing. No matter what your financial goals are, your dedicated First Republic banker will be there to guide you every step of the way. Visit firstrepublic.com today to learn more. That's firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC equal housing lender. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think that, yes, at least from my experience, mentoring women, young professionals, all the way to DECA millionaire women, 
run their own businesses, very successful businesses. There certainly is that sense of, I think, yeah, guilt would be a good word, more so because I think they're wondering, should I be giving a certain percentage toward my family or should I be giving a certain percentage of my income toward charity, for example? A lot of times I hear the word charity pop up Mm. instead of just... Before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you investing it in myself because obviously on one hand, it could be seen as selfish, but honestly, if you're building your wealth, I don't really think that's selfish. I think that's you building a lasting legacy for your family. Exactly. And I love that you mentioned that because you put it so much better than I was able to when I was like, no, this is not the direction that I was really going. And I really need to clarify this because I don't want you just listening, thinking what? Did Jen just say she didn't want to build that big of a wealth? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is one, define what wealth is for you. And two, it's completely okay for reach for those numbers. You don't have to feel guilty and selfish. That was the word that I was looking for. So thank you for clarifying. (laughs) My pleasure. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Because I'm like, wait, no, that's not where I was going. And then I got lost in my thoughts. And anyways, this is podcasting for you. Um, (laughs) And not, I'm not covering it with the Instagram, like making it pretty. This is real. This is real. So the other thing that I wanted to discuss was long-term care. And long-term care, it's scary. It's expensive. And many Latinos have multi-generational households. So there'll come a time where they have to decide either upon long-term paying for long-term care or doing it all themselves. And depending on their who's living in the household, that might be difficult or what they're dealing with in that household. So talk to us about long-term care, overcoming those costs And how do we determine maybe how much long-term care we need? Of course, that's kind of a tough question because it depends on like, (laughs) we need to get to that point where we need it. But tell us a little bit about the challenges that you hear from people on fearing not having enough for long-term care or preparing for long-term care. Absolutely. First of all, long-term care in general is a huge concern for, honestly, people that I've spoken with who are 25 all the way to 60 and 70 years old. So first things first, long-term care is, for those of you who aren't really familiar, it's basically a type of insurance that helps pay for some of your costs when you need, for example, help getting dressed you need outside help, you need a nurse, for example, or you need to go into an assisted living facility to kind of help you do your daily living activities. And those include bathing, eating, sleeping, all that stuff. And long-term care, because the health industry in general has seen inflation rates of north of 6% some years. So basically the cost is going up so much every year versus the average income that the average person earns is only going up like 1% to 3% per year. There's a very big difference. And a lot of people are scared that they won't be able to fund a long-term care event should they need help, right? Or should they need assisted living help? And this is a very, very big question that should be addressed 
early on. When you are 60 years old, 70 years old, if you decide to purchase long-term care insurance, for example, at that age, chances are it's going to be really expensive for you because of your age. And what insurance companies like is low risk. They don't like to take on a lot of risk. And what that means is the younger you are, the earlier you purchase a long-term care insurance policy, for example, the lower the cost because chances are you won't need long-term care for a very long time. So the insurance company isn't going to charge you a lot for it. And there are a couple of ways to get around long-term care and still have a sustainable cost. And one of those, and this is actually the most popular thing that I've seen my clients, my mentees do, is purchasing what's known as a life insurance policy. So there are different types of life insurance policies out there. You can get that, for example, on someone's life for $100,000, $300,000, whatever it is, dollars. And this life insurance policy has a little benefit that's tacked onto it. And what that benefit is, is that long-term care benefit. So the chassis, the basis is a life insurance policy. And then there's that little benefit of long-term care, which means if that person who is insured has a long-term care event, they need nursing help, they need to go to an assisted living facility, whatever that event is, they can use a portion of that life insurance money and actually pay for those expenses. And there typically is a cap. I think the cap is $10,000 per month, but you don't need to reach that cap. You can kind of structure your insurance policies in order to match your needs. Now, when the question is, what is the average stay, for example, in a long-term care facility? The answer is three years. It's a long time, yeah, in a long-term care facility. And typically it's longer for women than for men, unfortunately. Because we live longer. Exactly. Absolutely right. That's literally right. And the average cost, believe it or not, per year, if you're fully in an assisted living facility, for example, is between $50,000 to $100,000 a year. And that's for like a semi-private room. It's really expensive. Yeah, it definitely is. And I'm curious to know, because you can probably talk about life insurance for an hour, because that's an area I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so complex. There's so much to know. But this life insurance policy that you're talking about, I'm most likely sure it's not the term, but it's more of a whole life insurance policy, I would presume. Yes. So this one is actually, it's called a universal life policy, but it's kind of like a whole life. It basically has a cash value, like a whole life policy, and it basically lasts for your entire life. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. That's what I figured. I figured it had to be like the whole life, universal life. But that's interesting. I don't think I I knew that before. So that is good to know. Of course, the universal life policies in comparison to the term insurance (laughs) is definitely more expensive for those listening. I mean, it depends. I'm not going to say prices because it just, there's different variables and different companies and all that stuff, but it's not your $40 a month type of investment. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's maybe several hundred dollars. Yeah. Something around there. Would you say? Yes, that's right. Like you said, Jen, it depends on one, your age. This is a good time to think, you know, if you're 30, 40 years old and you don't have a life insurance policy yet on your life, this might actually be a good time to kind of get two birds with one stone, so to say, right? So one, you get life insurance through this 
universal life policy, basically, which is more expensive than term. And you tack on that long-term care benefit, which will also help you in case you have down the road, a long-term care event. So it kind of gets two birds with one stone. Right. And would you say that's probably the best way in terms of getting around or preparing for long-term care? Or are there some other ways of investing or that type of thing? Or what would you say? So there are certainly many other ways. I mean, I'm actually thinking of three other ways. I hope we have time. Cut me off, please. (laughs) Go for it. So I'll list the ways and then I can go into depth. In addition to that life insurance with that long-term care benefit, there's also a policy known as a hybrid policy that takes kind of what is available, that death benefit within a regular life insurance policy And it also takes what's available in a traditional long-term care policy, which is an inflation rider. What that means is every year, long-term care costs increase significantly. And this hybrid policy keeps up with the inflation cost. So if you, for example, purchase in this hybrid policy, let's say a $3,000 per month benefit, if you were to undergo a long-term care event today, that $3,000 is not going to purchase you the same $3,000 in 50 years from now because of inflation, meaning $3,000 in today's money is going to be worth much less in future money. So to keep up with the rising cost of healthcare insurance, long-term care insurance, there's this inflation rider that goes with it. It's something that increases your money, basically. That's one of the other ones. And there is a third way to provide long-term care insurance. And that is actually when you decide to go to an assisted living facility. And I know that word assisted living facility is not exactly on the top of everyone's mind. (laughs) I know that for a fact, but there are actually some assisted living facilities out there that are faith-based. And typically speaking, when they are faith-based, that means they have a much lower chance of kicking residents out of their facility, if you will, because they're running out of money. So for example, let's say you, you spend all your money for your health and your health care, and you're in this assisted living facility, and you show the people at this assisted living facility your net worth, which is going to be probably zero at that time, right? Let's say you're 70, 80 years old. You show them your net worth. It's zero they're not going to kick you out. At least the ones that I know here that are faith-based, they don't kick out their residents because of that faith. So that's kind of, if you're worried about running out of money, you need that long-term care help. And you did, you know, you obviously have to contribute some money to live in this assisted living facility, but the chances are they won't kick you out. And I'm curious, because I would suppose, let's say if I were to go to one of these faith-based assisted living facilities, looking into them. It's not, I suppose, I would guess that they're not going to say in their paperwork, if you come to a point (laughs) that you don't have any more money, we're good. We will keep you. I don't think they're going to advertise that in any way, shape or form. I would think it's just maybe do your homework and see if, I don't know how to go about finding that information, but obviously you have had some experience or in talking to some people where you you've come across maybe people that ran out of the money and they weren't kicked out. So somehow be able to do that homemark. Absolutely. I can't guide you in how to do it, 
because I'm pretty sure that that facility is not going to say, it's okay if you ran out of money because we've got you. (laughs) They're not going to say that. That's absolutely right, Jen. Yeah. You know, I have had personal experience where some of my clients were able to remain within the facility itself, although they ran out of money. But obviously the downside to that is to actually get into an assisted living facility, the upfront cost, meaning what your upfront, your initial cash outlay is going to be pretty high. And we're talking anywhere from probably 50,000 to 200,000 or more, because you're basically buying into this assisted living facility. So it is expensive. I'll definitely tell you that, but absolutely do your research and maybe schedule an appointment with a representative from that assisted living facility that you're you know, looking at. And it might actually make sense, could be a good fit. And other times it might not be a good fit. Right, right. I wanted to clarify that because I'm like, it's, they're not going to share that information. <laughs> <laughs> you wish, you wish. That would be nice. They'd be more filled and probably out of business too. That's because, right. Uh, yeah, it takes money to run that business. And was there another strategy? I think you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Keeping track. <laughs> <laughs> the last strategy, which I'm sure everyone is familiar with, is really just self-funding. Mm-hmm. Self-funding essentially means you're going to take a portion, for example, of your income, let's say 5% of what you earn every year, and you put it into a separate bucket, like a separate investment account that you use to grow for any potential future long-term care expenses. And the goal here, though, is not to touch this bucket, right? Like, don't touch it. Do not withdraw money from it invest for the long term in case you actually do need that money for long-term care expenses. Now, that being said, self-funding is absolutely a viable option. And most of the time, it actually, it's not a bad deal. However, the downside here is if you really do undergo a long-term care event, and I think percentages are rising, like I think there's a pretty large majority of our population that does at some point in their life need long-term care help. That bucket likely won't last your full long-term care event if it is that three-year average that it typically does take. So it's kind of like taking a bet. If you keep yourself healthy, if you have a really good family history where your family in general doesn't undergo these types of events, chances are this could be a good strategy for you. That's only something you can know for yourself. Right. And it's hard to know because as I'm listening to you, and of course, with insurance, insurance is made for a purpose. And sometimes they're taking a risk on you. You're taking a risk on them because you're giving them money. I mean, not in terms of long-term insurance, but you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons. And then you really don't know what's going to happen to you or your loved one. I mean, it's until it happens. It's hard. I think you have to, ahead of time, like now, start thinking, you know your family best, but start thinking, like, how do you want to prepare what's most comfortable for you? Maybe a self-funding in combination with some sort of policy, because I'm sure... I'm not a any life insurance policy expert, but I know there's all sorts of different products. That's why I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't. <laughs> I can't with life insurance because it's just so complex and so many different types of products. And if you get this one, you do this and this costs. And if you do this, and it's just too much. But I think for you listening, it's just 
start thinking about how you want to prepare. I think thinking ahead and preparation, you're going to be ahead of the game and it'll be when it comes to your time that maybe you need long-term care. Maybe you just can stay at home and be comfortable. We don't know what that will look like for any of us. I wish we could, but I think it's just important to make a decision and start thinking about that and make a decision how you want to approach it, do your homework and see what you can do to prepare now. Maybe you can't do anything. Maybe you're in a situation that you're really working on getting out of that student loan debt, but start preparing and thinking, okay, once I get this done, this is our strategy. Do you have anything else you want to add to that? I mean, I think you nailed it right there. The most important thing is plan ahead. And I mean, to give you an example, in long-term care insurance premiums for a 65-year-old could be more than twice as much as the cost of long-term care insurance premiums for a 55-year-old. So it's so important to plan ahead because the cost of long-term care insurance is based on your age. And typically the sweet spot is in your 50s. That's when most people buy it. If you're an early bird, right? If you're thinking about this stuff when you're 20, 30, 40 years old, you have this massive advantage, this massive leap ahead. And you're able to kind of look at the different options, figure out what works for you, and then you can make your move and still save on the cost of long-term care because you're young. Right. Because then in in that essence, you can plan in terms of, okay, this is what I'm going to tackle first. Let's say your student loans or whatever it is, and I'm making this up. (laughs) then I'm going to increase how much I'm going to contribute to my retirement, right, for the investment. And then once I reach a certain, then I maybe I'll start making more or or I'll plan to make more. And then I'll start putting away for the self-funding or getting a life insurance policies or whatnot. So I think it's just a matter of thinking Start putting a plan. That plan may not work like you want it to work at this time, but at least you're started thinking about it versus I'll think about it later. Exactly. That's what gives you the edge. Exactly. Oh my gosh, Fiona, this was wonderful. I really appreciate the time that you took with us to share your expertise because if you ask me about insurance, I'm like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) (laughs) not my area. (laughs) But obviously, you know your stuff. So I really appreciate you and taking time out of your busy schedule to come and chat with us. It was my pleasure, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Muchas gracias. No, gracias a ti. Fiona was absolutely fantastic, and I hope that you enjoyed this conversation I had with her. You can connect with her on her website, which is themillennialmoneywoman.com. I'll also have that link in the show notes, and she's very active on Twitter. So if you are a Twitter fan, I encourage you to look her up there by The Millennial Money Woman. If after listening to this conversation, you feel like you just need some continued support in lessening the overwhelm that you feel with money and increasing your confidence, I invite you to grab my free daily dinero ritual, which can help you do just that. And you can grab it over at jenhemphill.com forward slash ritual. And it's also linked in today's show notes. Next week on the podcast, we will get to meet 
Marcus Garrett and learn more about his getting out of debt story, which he even wrote a whole book about. So stay tuned for that episode. That is it. Eso es todo. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune into the show. Be sure to check out the show notes at jenhemphill.com forward slash 271 to refer back to everything you need from the show. Remember that we are having some timestamps for specific parts of the show. So it's easy just to listen or re-listen to those parts. Also remember that being the reina of your money starts now simply with claiming it. I believe in you and so should you. If you love this podcast, love this episode, I would love it if you would share it with someone you care about. You never know what exactly that person is going through, and the simple act of sharing can change the direction of their financial life for the better. Bueno pues, that is everything. Nos hablaremos el próximo jueves. Chao.